Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of the Shared Ireland podcast. So today we are delighted to be joined by Sinn Féin's MLA, or one of them I should say, for Mid-Ulster, Linda Dillon. How are you keeping, Linda? I'm good, thank you very much, Niall. Delighted to be here. Linda, I literally kidnapped you here um, while you're out canvassing and fired you into a passenger seat in my car. I hope I don't get um, a letter from Michelle O'Neill complaining that um, all your doors haven't been knocked. We're currently, I believe, Linda, in the highest village in the north of Ireland, Pomeroy in County Tyrone. Is that correct? It is indeed, and a beautiful village it is. And I'm very, very proud to have represented it for the last six years. And I hope that the people of Pomeroy will vote for me and elect me to continue to represent them and I have the honour of representing many villages and towns across East Tyrone and it really is an honour and every single person that comes out and votes for me is saying that they have faith in me to deliver for them so I really appreciate it. Linda we always start the podcast off for the benefit of for the benefit even of our listeners that maybe aren't familiar with you tell me who is Linda Dill? Well I do I have to tell my age in this one now? But yes, I am a 45-year-old girl. still call myself a girl. Um, originally from South Armagh. Married and moved to Clano. So love brought you to Tyrone. Love brought me to Tyrone, absolutely. And moved to Clano in 2006. And was already a member of Sinn Féin for many years before that. I've been a member of Sinn Féin now for um, just over 30 years. And I, it's very important to me. Who I am is very important to me. Being a Republican is very important to me. And I moved to Clano, as I say, in 2006 and joined the Common and Coal Island then in 2007 and became involved in the election campaign of that year and campaigned and canvassed for Michelle O'Neill in the local area and then became very much involved in Sinn Féin and East Tyrone. What was the progressive step that um, kind of, were you asked, were you approached, or was it something that you had in mind that you wanted to become an elected representative? Um, were you a councillor first? Yeah, well, I suppose, first of all, to say I've been, in, as I say, I've been a Sinn Féin activist for over 30 years, and no, it was absolutely never my intention to be an elected rep. In fact, I would say I would have done anything to avoid it, if I'm being honest about it. Um, very much love being an activist but an elected rep's role is, is a massive responsibility and it does take some encouragement and it does take some support and people talking to you to make you believe in yourself and realise that actually maybe I am capable of doing this so I was then asked would I stand for council in the new Middlestar council in 2014 which was made up of the old Dungannon, Cookstown and Maherfelt council areas and I did stand for election in the Coal Island area and was elected as a councillor for that area, for the Torrent area. And what's the next step then? Uh, does someone within the party see your potential, see that the good work that you've clearly done as a councillor and do they approach you then and ask you would you consider running for the assembly? So I was lucky enough to be selected by our council team as the first um, chairperson of the new Mid-Ulster Council and I suppose that gave me good ground. And I also worked in the Sinn Féin office in Coal Island. I worked in that office for Francie, Michelle and Martin mm-hmm. um, since 2007. So I had a, a good ground, and I would say, and a good background and a good understanding of what the issues were across the area. 
And I really do think that is a good grounding because you get to know the people and the people get to know you long before you're ever elected. And the position became available because Martin was vacating to move to um, stand in his own area of Derry. Mm-hmm. And there were actually a, a couple of us that, that went forward. And I have to say that, I mean, I feel very honoured that I was selected, but I think and there were a number of people that certainly could have been selected as a, as the MLA for Mid-Ulster and would have been equally as good a candidates. I, I'm delighted that I was selected, but I have some very, very good comrades and colleagues that would have equally done a good job. What's your current title within Sinn Féin in the Assembly? Uh, victims, what is it again? So I... In the, in the assembly up until obviously that the assembly went into to Perda for the election, I was and still am, I suppose, the party spokesperson on victims and legacy. And that includes um, the victims of all um, issues. So, you know, current day victims as well, but also legacy of the conflict, but also victims of historical institutional abuse, mm-hmm. of the mother and baby homes, mm-hmm. um, historical clerical abuse, all of those issues. So as you can imagine, they're very, very complex issues and you're dealing with people who have been through some of the most horrendous trauma right across that that spectrum of victims. And that's not always easy because it it is very difficult and some of the things that you hear and have to deal with is, is not easy to deal with. But I'm also delighted and proud to be able to work with those people and try my very best to represent them in the best way that I can and some of the work that we've been able to do I think you know has is stuff that I will leave as a legacy and feel extremely proud of for example the historical institutional abuse and and the legislation around that and I'm not saying for one minute that I delivered that alone because far from it in fact the victims the victims are the people. Victims and survivors are the people who brought it to the point. But I was very honoured to be able to be part of a team that was able to deliver that legislation, you know, and, and be able to design the legislation or co-design it rather with them. And it wasn't perfect. And we did have to go back and look at it again. But that's right. That's that's what, you know, that's what government, that's what assembly, that's what the institution should be about. It should be about where things are not right. You listen to the people that the most impact and you try to make it better. I think that's a very important distinction that you made there, that it's victims. I suppose I've got this perception, and, and rightfully maybe other people would, when you hear Sinn Féin's victim spokesperson, mm-hmm. you automatically assume it's troubles related. Mm-hmm. But of course, folks, you know, there's victims in every walk of society. And um, yeah, as you rightfully say, you try to help all yeah. victims. And I suppose to say, just to say, Niall, some of the, the victims and survivors that I've dealt with have actually been impacted by all of these things. So, mm. you know, have been inf- impacted by one isolated incident. Impacted by the conflict, mm. by historical institutional abuse, by the mother and baby homes. A lot of them can be can be interlinked. Yeah. And I'm delighted to say that there are, you know, good services now in terms of support and, you know, trauma related and trauma informed services that that have to counsel these people because but, but Linda, you say there's good support. Let's be honest. Part of the good support is is our health system, and you know the NHS is not fit for purpose. No, it's not, and and that is, I suppose, the next level where you would need the that psychological and spe- specialist psychiatric help. But there actually has been really good services put in place in terms of 
the, the council and, and, and that level. And I mean, some organisations obviously deliver that well, and, uh, and rightly so because they have a better understanding and they're better trauma informed. And I think they're part of the community that they're trying to. But I feel as if Linda, and I'm sure many as a person listening to us speak now will feel the same, is that if it wasn't for the agencies that that aren't linked to any government uh, body, you know, if it wasn't for these voluntary agencies, I don't think, you know, the support actually would be there at all if these agencies removed themselves. Yeah, and, and I think you're right, but I don't think there's any risk of them removing themselves. And they're 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 funded by central um by the assembly and central government for, for that very reason because they are valuable. And to be honest, at that level, and, and even I, I believe that they could probably to be to be truthful with you, I believe that they could deliver even that higher level of help as well and where they can't they at least will be able to link in with the health service in a better way but I believe they actually deliver a better service because they completely understand those victims that they're dealing with so for example people who would be counselling victims of the conflict are not the same people who would be who would be counselling victims of historical institutional abuse those two types of victimhood are very very different and they need people with very specialist skills Linda <clears throat> It kind of, it maddens me, and I, and I know I'm making this slightly more political here as opposed to all victims, but like Boris Johnson and the Tory government's plans to draw a line under troubles related mm. incidents, you know, how does that in any way serve the victims and survivors? Well, the short answer is it doesn't now. And I actually, in this, I and, and again, say, I qualify victims and survivors from all walks mm-hmm. of life, absolutely. not just Republican mm-hmm. or nationalists. Absolutely, and I mean, I'm always very clear about that, and I have always engaged with with victims and survivors from all backgrounds and all walks of life, and I have to say, I've had some really good engagements, particularly through the Victims Forum, and I find that a really useful forum for being able to, you know, ensure that I am reaching out to and listening to victims from all backgrounds. So whether they're victims who have lost loved ones at the hands of of the IRA, of loyalists, of you know other Republican organisations, of the RUC, the UDR, SES. All of those people are victims and all of those families, pain is the same. No one is, is more or less. And there is a theory, Linda, like can we as a society properly move on? And I mean properly move on and leave our past behind until we actually deal with it. And this is uh, the, the $24 million question. Absolutely not. It's part of reconciliation. And and in this, I would actually say, you know, when we talk about the, the different types of victims, so, you know, obviously I do deal with historical institutional abuse and all those other types of victimhood, but none of those people could move on until they felt they'd got their closure, until they'd got their apology, until they'd got their support services, until people had accepted that somebody had done wrong. So why are we saying, absolutely, so why are we saying to a whole section of victims and survivors in our society that actually these people, their victimhood matters and yours doesn't? And and to put a figure on this, obviously I'm just plucking this out of the sky, but there was over three and a half thousand people killed in our most recent conflict. So I would imagine you could triple that in people that were, you know, triplet, sorry, I'm laughing at you, could multiply it by 10, maybe, the people that's walking about that were damaged in some way, maybe, you know, thankfully didn't die, but lost lost an arm, lost a leg, mentally traumatised, had a family member, like, these are all victims. So, to, to put it bluntly, I'm going to ask you just a straight question, 
Why is the British government doing this? Well, to protect themselves. Why? Let's be honest. Why? To protect their own name, to, to ensure that it's ne- that the truth of what happened here is never fully Are you realized. talking about collusion here? I'm, I'm talking about actually all of this was politically motivated. It was politically directed. It went to the very heart of Downing Street. Not for one second. I mean, people talk about collusion. And yes, in that you could be talking about were police officers and UDR officers and, and those individuals colluded with loyalists and, and collusion on, on, on all sides. That's one side of it. But actually, that's not even. That's not even what the British government want to protect. It's the next level. It's the, that this goes to the very heart of their government. But the other thing they also have to protect is, in their minds, they're thinking, we're still involved in wars across the world. And if we allow British soldiers to be, you know, to be taken to court and to be prosecuted, then how are we going to get them to do the things that we've got them to do? You mentioned there it's to protect the next level. What are you referring to when you say the next level? The the very heart of government. The the political, those who were in political power at that time in Downing Street, the very, very heart of the British government. So this is not about just, you know, in fact, I would say they have no interest in protecting police officers and, and UDR officers and, you know, those individuals that were involved in collusion because they don't include them in any amnesty. Mm-hmm. They include British soldiers. Mm-hmm. This is about protecting the British state, mm-hmm. their state. It's about protecting their government and their soldiers. They actually don't care about anybody here. If you listen to what they're proposing, they don't care about victims on any side or section of our community at all. Uh, you, Linda, took part in a podcast with ourselves with Only Morphe, Robert, David mm-hmm. Latimer and Mike Nesbitt. I did. Um, maybe a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. And that was about victims and legacy and survivors and whatnot. And I think the thing that struck me about listening to the four of you speak, even though the four of you wouldn't traditionally agree on maybe the wider political mm-hmm. scale, but like all four of you were adamant that victims and survivors did need um, some sort of acknowledgement or truth process or whatever you call it. And, and as I say, that's what struck me. People from across the divide here seem to be united in this one. Yeah, and and I think that is the case, you know, and the legacy proposals, the Stormont proposals were far from perfect. You know, they weren't, it wasn't a Sinn Féin document and it wasn't a document that belonged to any one party or any one section. It very much was a compromised position and what we, a really it was a position of trying to deliver for as many people in as many different ways as you possibly could and I suppose just to put that in context within a family that have maybe lost somebody in these circumstances you won't get agreement on how to move forward and what they want whether they want justice whether they just want to know the truth about what happened whether they just want the story told or whether they just want to move on mm-hmm. and so you imagine you you spread that out into whole society of victims so trying to find a solution and that's why there were a number of facets to the legacy proposals and there was a massive consultation process around that and there was 17 and a half thousand responses I don't think you'd find too many consultation processes out there that would have that number or that level of responses and it was hard work it was hard work to ensure that everybody that had a right to respond did get the opportunity to respond and there was a lot of work done to ensure that maybe those who hadn't the ability or the capacity to put in writing, you know, a, a consultation response. Certain organisations actually worked with them to do record recordings of that. And, you know, that took a lot of time. It took a lot of effort and it took 
it was very, very difficult for the victims involved, actually, to have to do that and put it to paper and be recorded. But they'd done it because they believed that this was going to be, this process was going to be the process that was going to deliver for victims and survivors. And after all of that work, by all of the parties, by all of the victims, by all of their advocates and the victims groups and organisations and NGOs, the British government just decided, we're not going to bother doing this at all. We'll put these all of these people through this and sure, we'll, we'll just do come up with a new process that suits ourselves. Tell me this. This is now April 2022, um, a couple of weeks before the next Assembly elections. Where does and how does and when will the pension for the victims and survivors be paid out? Well, I, mean, I know it's not under your remit. Well, actually, I mean... In terms of, of advocating for it, we were very much supportive and that process has now started. So applications are now in for that. And as far as I'm aware, that, that process is, is, is happening. And I think victims and survivors will be paid out fairly soon. Linda, and some the, may already have the, been. The, define a victim for me. Well, the definition of a victim is is there. It is not my definition. It is a legal definition in 2006. But, but you know, they're, they're, the reason why and I ask this question is because there there's, there's serious issues with the definition and who applies, or sorry, who um, who is eligible, sorry, to apply for this. And that was our issue with this particular this particular victim's pension because they agreed, again, we had an agreed position which was consulted on and the Victims Forum actually, you know, supported this. And it, it was a difficult one to, to get over, but people were prepared to, to work with it. And again, the British government decided that they would decide who a victim was and they would exclude others. I have no doubt that there will be legal challenges to this. Can I you, hope there are. Can, uh, you hope there are. Hope okay. There are. Can you clarify for me and our listeners, is it true that if you served, what was it, 18 months plus, that you do not qualify if you consider yourself a victim. Is that correct? If you served 18 months plus in jail, I mean. As far as I'm aware. And that is no matter what you serve that time for, regardless if that was for, a, you know, a political um, issue or anything else. So, I mean, completely unfair. It's discriminatory in my view. And it's absolutely intended and designed to be that way. It's designed to be discriminatory. And for me... It, it's what we've already talked about. You know, who gets to decide who is a victim? I don't get to decide who's a victim. Neither or, or nobody does should. any other party. Mm-hmm. There is a definition of a victim there. Yeah, but somebody did. And that was the British government. Again, deciding to go over the heads of everybody else. And we, as I say, we were very supportive of, of a pension being paid out. And we made that clear in our submission to the consultation around the legacy proposals. That, that we would actually support it because we knew that that meant a lot to some people. So we have we have always went the extra mile in trying to deliver for victims and survivors. And that's the right thing to do because we should be responding to the needs. We should be responding to what victims and survivors are telling us the same way that we respond to victims and survivors in regards to any issue. Just before we, we... And it should be treated the same way. We shouldn't... This, this nonsense of politicking around victims and survivors has to stop. We don't do it in relation to HIA. We don't do it in relation to mother and baby homes. Why are we doing it in relation to people who are equally traumatised in relation to the conflict? These people deserve to have closure. They deserve to have the truth. 
where they want and need it and, and are able to get it. And they deserve it justice. All except money will not cure anything, mm-hmm. but it may afford somebody a slightly better quality of life um, to enable them to process, to get on with their lives, to maybe add something, bring something to their lives that, that maybe will give them more peace of mind. Well, Niall, for some of them, what it'll do is give them dignity at the end of their life because some of them are people who were injured and who have very serious injuries and are finding it very difficult to get the t- type of treatment that they need. As you, as you outlined earlier on, issues with our health service getting the type of treatment they need in our health service and aren't able to so this money would potentially help them just to have a bit of dignity a bit of humanity a decent service and level of health care that they need because of their particular injuries whether those be physical or psychological mm-hmm. finally just before we move off this subject Linda are you confident that the executive will be able to fund this or is there still an issue about who's going to fund this there is no issue around it is going to be funded but the British government have a responsibility around this as well and they absolutely need to pay up. Do the Irish government have any responsibility uh, in regards to funding this as well? Well on this particular one on the pensions one it is the British government who designed it. Mm -hmm. It is British government legislation and therefore they have a responsibility to fund it under their own laws. No problem. Linda, um, as I said at the start there um, we are currently sitting in Pamirai um, in Mid-Ulster, County Tyrone. Tyrone has a, a quite large Sinn Féin representation. Um, now, please correct me if I'm wrong here. We've got Michelle O'Neill, uh, MLA, current um, party leader in the North. We've got Emma Sheeran, MLA. We've got yourself, MLA. We've got Colm Gildenew, MLA. With Francie Malloy, MP. Orla Bigley, MP. Michelle Gildenew, MP. Did I miss anyone? Well, I suppose it depends if we're talking about Mid Ulster or Tyrone, but that that would be that would cover the the Mid Ulster yeah. council that, area. That, that's that's a know. that's a large um, large representation that Sinn Féin have in this mm-hmm. area. What do you put that down to? Well, mainly I, I know we're the biggest county in the north, yeah. but well, the biggest county, but not not necessarily the the biggest population. But mm. I would put most of it down to hard work, because we are held very accountable by our constituents. And I can assure you, whether it be when I'm out in the canvas or whether it be when I'm in my office or in my home, and I make myself completely available at all times of the day. My mobile number goes on social media um, regularly. I get phone calls and Facebook messages and DMs through Instagram. And You, you mentioned canvassing. Tell me and tell our listeners the importance of canvassing for you. Do you honestly learn anything? Do you take seriously what the objections and things that people may say to you on the canvas trail? Does that be fed into, you know, a central party um, think tank group or what? Tell me the importance of canvas. Well, first and foremost, it gives people the opportunity to put their questions, their opinions, their views to you, whether that is positive or negative. And to be honest, for the most part, it's very positive. You know, you, you, I'm fine. You're, you're going to say that, aren't you? Yeah, but but it is. I mean, the the vote says it. You know, people wouldn't vote for you if they didn't if they didn't support you. But yes, absolutely, everything that's fed in, regardless or that is fed into us by our constituents, regardless of what that issue is, yes, we do take it down. We take note of it. We go away and we look at it. And, and do, we, do you and come we, back to the person then? Always, always. And if we don't, I can assure you, they come back to me. And absolutely, 
you know, you, you could be expecting a few DMs here shortly. Yeah, they should. <laughs> but you know, I, I am I am contacted by all of those those methods and modes, and and that's good. That's good. People have access to me all the time, and so they should because very often they'll, by the time people come to me, they've tried everything else and they're at their wits' end and they're frustrated, so they're already maybe in a very difficult or a very bad place. So if they can't get me easily. That will only make them more frustrated, and that frustration will be directed. Okay, I'm saying this to you slightly tongue in cheek, but I, I, I could say this equally to any elected rep that's sitting mm-hmm. beside me. Why do we only see you a month before every election? Well, I can assure you, all of my constituents see me all the time and have easy access, and that's the point I'm making that people are able to contact me all the time. That's why I put my mobile number out there on social media so that nobody ever is in a position where they feel they can't get in contact with me or you know whatever now if there are particular issues in an area we'll certainly go out and and speak to people around that i mean i can say i've been out in a number of issues in this locality in Pomeroy, also kildreas um galbally so you're always out and about in the constituency if you're doing your job you're always out and about the constituency people should always have access to you and they should always see you are you knocking every single door all the time, no, because it's not physically possible. And if people want me to do my job, I can't be at their door every day of the week. But I try my best to make sure people have access to me. You mentioned there that you have your uh, contact number out in social media. Mm-hmm. What's the benefits and also the negative aspects of social media? And is it important in the environment that we currently live in, 2022? Does social media play a big part? in your role yes it's important because one of the things that was always said to me and I, I have to be honest I wasn't very good on it for a long time and one of the frustrations that some people would have had with me that have said you do all this work and nobody knows about it so yes people that's how people get their information about what you're doing and so yes you have to try and inform people about what you're doing and, and you do that through social media and as I say it's also a way for people to engage with you I don't I don't engage much on Twitter. I have to be honest. I find it quite a negative place, and I I'm not. I don't love negativity. I'm not fond of it. Um, Instagram I think is a very happy, lovely place. I I love <laughs> Instagram to be honest, and Facebook. I think you you do get a really good opportunity to engage, particularly with your your constituents, because a lot of them are on Facebook. Would it not be fair to say that there's more adult growing up political talk on Twitter? Yeah. No but, disrespect to the Facebook people, obviously. Yeah, but most of the people who are on Twitter, or very many of the people who are on Twitter, are very focused on an issue. And I want to talk to my constituents, all of them. I want to know what their issues are. I want to let them know what I'm doing to deliver for them. So, you know, yes, I absolutely am on Twitter. I'm there, but it's not a place that I have a, a massive focus on. Do, do you do honest. your own social media or um, you're going to tell me you have a big team behind the scenes there? No, I don't, unfortunately. I wish I did. Um, that would be fantastic. And if people look at my social media, they will know I don't have a team <laughs> behind me because some of it is not very professional, to say the least. But, but it's but real and it's you. It is, absolutely is. And, and I suppose just to say, and some people won't agree with this, but... I don't like negativity and I believe my social media, I'm, I'm happy for people to contact me and, and, you know, private message me on any issue. But if people just put a negative comment just for the sake of, and, and, it, and it's abusive, I will delete it immediately just so people are aware. It will not be left on my social media if, and people have access to their own social media to put what they wish on it, but it won't be left on me. And, and I feel very strongly about that because I don't see, 
you know, I think if you have something to say to somebody, as I say, I'm easily accessible. Say it to me, absolutely. But but you won't be leaving it on my on my social media page. Fair enough. There you go, folks. So nothing negative. Um, only positive vibes, please, for <laughs> Linda. Linda, tell me this. Explain to me and our listeners the importance of the Good Friday Agreement. And the reason why I'm asking this question is because, as we've all seen lately, there's protocol rallies mm. in different towns and villages across the north, rabble-rousing, people stirring the pot, you would... Yeah. Um, even potentially, um, you know, putting younger people, um, giving them a criminal record, patter bombing and rioting and stuff. Um, and, you know, I think it's a fair comment to say that these people are anti, or seems to be anti-Good Friday Agreement yeah. and nearly want to tear it up. So explain to our listeners the importance, please, of the Good Friday Agreement. Well, I suppose, first of all, to say I was in my early 20s whenever the Good Friday Agreement was signed. And I probably didn't fully understand at that time the importance of it because I was, I would say, quite young and probably a bit naive. But I'm very grateful that people around me did. I'm very grateful that wiser heads did know how important it was and did make me understand how important it was that we worked towards a peaceful settlement and the Good Friday Agreement gave us the best opportunity to deliver that. Because if if it had been left to people like me that didn't really understand the importance of it and wasn't sure if it was going to work out and didn't know if I trusted it, then where would we be today if we didn't have the Good Friday Agreement in 1998? I don't know where we would be. But I think we're in a much better place because we did have the Good Friday Agreement. I think we're in a much better place because we had a genuine opportunity as Republicans to move and I hope and I make no secret I'm a Republican so I'm I'm about a united Ireland so to move that forward but through peaceful means and be able to work with others to do that and I believe that the Good Friday Agreement gives all of us the best opportunity of having a good life and all of us the best opportunity of having a say but it should never you know, we should never be prevented from having conversations about the things that are important to us. I would never try to prevent anybody from having a conversation about how important the union is to them. And nor should they try to prevent me from having a conversation about how important a United Ireland is to me. And I think we can, on very many occasions, agree to disagree. We can have conversations, we can have political debate. But I don't believe the protocol stuff is actually anything to do with um, the Good Friday Agreement, and I think it's being thrown into the mix really and truly to, to try and confuse people about what all of this is about. The protocol is not a perfect solution, but it is the solution to a very imperfect Brexit. And it's a direct consequence of DUP Tory Brexit. It is an absolute direct consequence. So the people who are out now protesting against the protocol are the people who delivered it. Exactly. So it is quite frustrating to see them out rallying and, you know, whipping up tensions and that all does create concern. And it's okay for me maybe sitting in Clano and, you know, feeling pretty safe where I live because I'm not on a peace line. I'm not in an area where there's likely to be that kind of tension. But I do feel, really deeply feel for those that are, and I mean those on all sides of the community, because I want everybody to have a good life. I want all of our 
young people coming behind us to be able to look forward to a better future, to be able to look forward to the possibility of a decent education, a decent home, a decent health service, a decent job and a, and a good life for them and their families. Linda, are you annoyed at Doug Beatty and Geoffrey Donaldson's refusal to answer a straight question that if Sinn Féin are, after this next election, the biggest party, that the DUP or the UUP have not clarified whether they would nominate for Deputy First Minister. How do you feel about that? Well, I suppose, first of all, to say, if we are the biggest party, we will be nominating. I will be back in the Assembly. I will be back there on day one to be at my work and to deliver for the people. And I think that if whoever is the largest unionist party, whoever is there to, to be our partner in government, fail to do the same, then I think they will they will pay the paper with their own supporters and their and their own community because people are very, bit. very focused on what is impacting them today. And what is impacting them today, and we all know, Niall, it is the cost of living crisis. And if we cannot have an assembly and an executive that actually tries to help people around the cost of living crisis and around our health service and all the issues that people are facing every day of the week, then I think people will feel very aggrieved. So I would urge them to seriously think. But I also think that some people out there would think, well, I don't understand why you wouldn't, you know, because it was never an issue for you to be in an executive whenever you were the largest party. So why, why does it suddenly become an issue just because Sinn Féin's the largest party? Your partner's in government or you're not. And that's it. Um, <clears throat> listening to a lot of people on social media, as I tend to do, the big fear from a unionist perspective is Sinn Féin becomes the largest party. They are um, first minister. Unionism our Deputy First Minister, and unionism's fear is that Sinn Féin will do nothing, only talk about a border poll and a united Ireland. They're probably right, are they? Well, first of all, as I've said before, I'll never shy away from the fact of who I am. I believe very much in a united Ireland, but I also believe in all of the other issues that we deal with every day. And we have never been any less vociferous before this election, about what we wanted and about a United Ireland. But this would give you the added impetus to continue this um, call for constitutional change for a border poll. Surely it would, and even you have to admit, it would send out a very strong message to Branton Lewis, to Boris Johnson, that yes, there is an appetite here because under the Secretary of State, obviously he or she is the only person who can call for a border poll if they believe the conditions are right. So by Sinn Féin, the largest party in the North, that surely will go a long way to prove that the conditions are right. Yes? No? Well, if we're the largest party in the North, whether or not a unionist partner decides to nominate, we will be the largest party in the North. And, and that's just the fact, you know. So if all of those things are going to feed into that, then that's what's going to happen naturally anyway. But I've never not been vociferous mm -hmm. about wanting a United Ireland. But as I said, I've, I've worked and I've worked hard for the last six years in the Assembly and I've worked with everybody and I don't think there's one MLA in the Assembly who couldn't say, who could say rather, that I haven't worked with them 
on many, many issues because I have and have worked well with them as not just worked with them not because I had to because I wanted to because I wanted to deliver and I wanted them to deliver with me we in the shared Ireland team are very proud to say that we do want constitutional change because for the past hundred years it simply has not served all the people equally and we're unashamedly pro uh, United Ireland but what we believe in having a conversation with everybody first of all and that's why ourselves, Ireland's future and other groups will be looking for the British and Irish government, uh, but particularly the Irish government to um, get a citizens assembly on the way so that we could start planning, talking, discussing, having these conversations that you and I are having and we could get the input from all in society regardless of their political persuasion or religious background. Where do you stand on what next, what's the next major step that has to be taken to start thinking about our future so that you and I don't have to be having these conversations in 20 years mm -hmm. time so that we can do the spade work here so that your children and our grandchildren don't have to. Yeah, I suppose for me there are a number of things but I, I think the Citizens Assembly is an important one. I think that if we don't have some type of Citizens Assembly, if we don't have a real conversation about this, we actually continue to feed into the fear because the fear of the unknown is the worst fear that anybody can have. And if you don't have conversation, then everything is unknown. Mm -hmm. So have conversation. Talk about this. You know, you won't necessarily agree on everything, but have the conversation. Understand everybody's perspective. Understand everybody's point of view. Because if we don't have the conversation, if we don't genuinely engage with each other right across the board, we are going to have another Brexit situation. Mm -hmm. We are going to end up in an absolute mess. So for me, the most important thing and is you're actually you're preparation. Refer, you're referring here, Linda, another Brexit situation by if there was a border poll called that people wouldn't be equipped to honestly go to the ballot box and say, well, yes, I've seen the research on this. Mm -hmm. I've seen the research on that. So I'll vote confidently. Yes or no. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And people should have access to all of the information and truthful information. Do you feel let down by the Irish government in their perceived lack of urgency on this issue? I've felt let down by them for quite some time, if I'm honest. Um, but look, they are the Irish government and you know we will work with them as we work with anybody else and I would urge them to do the right thing in relation to this. And then it's not. it doesn't matter whether I feel let down, it's the people. It's what does way how do wider society feel? So I think that they really need to ask themselves, are they serving all of those people? And when I talk about the fear factor, it almost seems as though they're afraid to talk about a United Ireland. You know, the Irish government are afraid to talk about a United Ireland. That's strange. To yeah. me, that's just strange. But and more ironic, the Republican Party. Yeah, they uh, should. You know, they should. They should be. They should be more afraid of not talking about it because not to talk about it is actually what creates that danger. It's what creates tension. It's what creates fear. And fear, as we all know, can create all sorts of problems. Linda, I'm looking at um, my watch here and I cannot believe we're 40 minutes in. And as I say, I hijacked you from uh, knocking doors. So just a few quick, more lighthearted questions mm -hmm. uh, before we go, if you don't mind. First one, why should somebody vote for Sinn Féin in this upcoming election? Well, there are lots of reasons and, and everybody votes for different reasons. So you vote for what's important to you. So you think about what the thing, what the, you know, the most important issues are for you and do our policies serve what's most important to you. So 
that, that, that for me is, is really why you would vote for anybody, you know, whether it's Sinn Féin or anybody else, to be honest with you. So ask yourself the question, what is it that's most important to me and do Sinn Féin serve that? And I, I hope the answer is yes. I think that's an important point, regardless who you vote for. I always say to people, you know, do not let me hear you complain if you don't vote. Because yeah. if you don't vote, you have no right to complain. Why should somebody vote for Linda Dillon? Well, it's I'm just the face on the poster, you know, and, and that is the truth of it. I will do the work, but I will do it because I am, I believe in what I do. I believe in my community and I am very much an activist, have been all of my life. And whether I'm elected or not elected, I will do that work and have all of my life done the same amount of work. I've been on every canvas since I joined the party, as I say, over 30 years ago. I've never missed. And for me, I just think that, as I say, I am the face on the poster, but the people behind me, I couldn't do the canvas and I do without all of those people. You know, people put up my posters, people canvas for me, people help me every day of every week, even just by ringing me and letting me know there's an issue in an area. That's a help to me and, and people around me do that. So, I mean, I genuinely could not do it without them. So when you're voting for me, yes, I will work for you and I will be accountable. I will be ultimately accountable to the people but I'm absolutely doing it for Sinn Féin all day, every day. And I'm doing it for the people who put me there. I'm doing it for, you know, my area who selected me to be there, Emily. Who inspires you in life, Linda? Um, the person who most inspired me was my mum. Your mum? I am her. I am absolutely her. I told her that the first time I was elected. And she was very embarrassed because we are like each other in that way. You know, you don't you don't like to get a compliment. But... And, and we aren't the kind of people who are lovey-dovey and hugging each other and, and all of that. But I was very clear with her. I said, I am the woman I am today because of you. You made me who I am. That I believe I am strong. I am a person who could always make do. I'm somebody who could take things on, work hard and get on with it. And all of that is because I was never allowed to do anything else because that was who my mummy was. She was. She was a real... Um, gore a real and also great fun good That's crack very nice and enjoyed life and love the people around her and I, I think I have all of that what's the best piece of advice you've ever been given or something in life that you hold dear a quote or well probably whenever I was first asked to stand for election and I very much doubted myself if I'm honest you know is it the right thing and, and, and all of that and a number of people spoke to me, but Michelle O'Neill probably was the main person who spoke to me at that time and said, why not? Why do you think you're not capable of doing it? Mm -hmm. And I had no answer to that. And she said, that's why you are. Not because you know all of the great things you can bring, but because you know there's nothing that you can't bring to it. One more dancer, water or alcohol? I have to be honest here, alcohol totally. Water while I'm canvassing and on the election trail, I'm on a total drink ban, but I can assure you at the end of it, it will be, hopefully there'll be plenty of water turned into wine. Favourite food? Favourite food? No, that's a, a Indian. What would you currently be doing if you weren't an MLA? What job? Well, I previously to work in, so I worked for Sinn Féin since 2007. But before that, I actually worked for a company called Keystone Lintels in Coastown. Oh, okay. And I worked in their accounts department. And what would I be doing if I wasn't an MLA today? I don't know, because honestly, I now believe 
that I could have been doing anything because <laughs> to be truthful I never believed I could be an MLA so who knows where I would have ended up but I'm but I'm glad and I'm very proud that I am where I am and what I've learned through my life from working in the office to being a counsellor to being an MLA has been so valuable to me I believe I could carry it anywhere. Last question you'll be delighted to hear and it's one that we always ask all our guests if you could invite three people to your fictional dinner party who would they be and why? Now, these three people, they can be alive or they can be dead, you know. Okay. Um, I'm going to have to say, it. first of all, my mummy, um, who has, who died recently. And because I'd love to have her back and I'd love to have her at dinner and everything in our life was always around her and about her. So definitely, definitely her. Um. Who would she like there now? That's the, the other question. You know, maybe the other two people I would like there, she would be thinking, now, what are you bringing them for? There are no crack. But it's your dinner party. So it's my dinner party. Um, My my daughter, Saraha. Oh, very good. Because everything in my life is about her. I love her. Okay. Um, And probably Michelle O'Neill. Because we always have good crack together. But but well, apart from it's your mum, it's all the women. Uh, <laughs> but apart from your mum, you can you can invite Michelle or your daughter any day of the week. Okay, but you don't you don't necessarily have to go for different people. Yeah, I oh. think there's nobody. I suppose just to to add to that, in my life there was nobody that I ever really thought was, you know, massively out there that I wanted to meet so badly. But if, but if it had to be one person, Jared Butler. Totally Jared Butler. <laughs> I eventually got, I got a meal out of you, at least. <laughs> Definitely. Very good. Linda Dillon, I'm going to leave the last word with you. Thank you very much, Niall. Really appreciate um, you inviting me onto your podcast today. And I see some of my canvassers sitting here waiting on me to get out on the canvas in Pomeroy. So I'm going to say we better cut it off there or they might cut me off. <laughs> Linda Dillon, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you today and giving up your valuable time. Uh, the Shared Island team appreciates it. Just before I go, folks, if any current MLA or anyone that is standing for um, the elections coming up in a couple of weeks' time wants to do an interview with ourselves, please don't be afraid to... Uh, let us know um, on Twitter and um, I will certainly try my best to get around to you regardless of what political party you are standing for. Okay, take care folks. Speak soon. Bye-bye.